All right. Well, uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of John. If you haven't already done that, we are wrapping up chapter five today. Um, and actually, uh, this will be our last sermon uh, in the book of John for a bit. Okay, so boo-hoo. Okay, and you're all really sad about that. Uh, we'll be working through some other things this summer um, and then picking John back up at the end of July or early August. Okay, so we're going to really, we're breaking up John into three sections. So um, we'll go through chapter five and then likely do five through 11, okay, in the fall. And then we'll do the rest of the book likely next spring. But just so you know kind of how, where we're headed. Um, if you were here with us last week, uh, we saw that Jesus said some pretty staggering uh, things about himself, right? Some very strong claims about who he is, uh, what he's able to do, and what he will do. And now today, as we wrap up chapter 5, we're going to see Jesus explain to us why we should believe him, okay? why we should believe all those incredible claims that he made. That's what we're going to consider and where we're headed today. Uh, but before we, we do that, um, I want to start, and I'll sh we'll put this on the screen in just a second, be patient, but I, I want to start by showing you a picture. It's a, it's a picture of a painting uh, that was completed in the year 1547, um, and it currently hangs in Germany um, in St. Mary's Church. The artist, his name is Lucas Cranach. He has a series of paintings there, and his purpose in this collection of works was to take all of Martin Luther's or his, Martin Luther's key teachings and put them into paintings. Um, it was a way to help teach doctrine amongst a people who were weak in that area. The common person was very weak in theology, could not read the Bible, and so he wanted to take Martin Luther, the great Martin Luther's teaching, put them into paintings so that people could understand our theology. And so, for example, if you go there, he has a painting of the Lord's Supper there, okay, which we're going to be partaking in today. He has a painting there of a person confessing at baptism, which we saw last week. But then there is also uh, this painting there of Martin Luther preaching. And the reason I'm, I'm going to show this to you is because I think it's a beautiful picture that perfectly illustrates what we are trying to do here at FEC when it comes to preaching and also how we are to read and see the Bible as individuals. And so if you look at this painting, we can put it up there now. Um, you see uh, that the great preacher and re reformer, Martin Luther, is there on, on the right side of the painting. Okay? That's him, Martin Luther. Um, he's preaching in this elevated pulpit. See him up there? I'm a little bit jealous of that, by the way. Okay? If we do renovate, expect, <laughs> expect it. All right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but what you see here, notice all these the details. They're all purposeful. Martin Luther there, he has one hand on the Bible, while the other hand is pointing at Jesus. And then on the left side there, you see that there's this crowd of people over here. And, and what are they doing? What are they doing in, in the painting? Well, they're all staring at Jesus, right? All of them, their eyes are looking at Jesus. They're not, they are not looking at their world-famous preacher. No, they are, they are captivated by Christ. But it's really interesting. If you take a closer look at that group of people, you see that there's one man who stands out who's not doing what the rest is doing. And that one man is not looking at Jesus, but actually he's looking at you. He's looking at you, which is an invitation to join the group in looking at Christ. 
It's a beautiful painting. And it is a great image of the tradition that you and I find ourselves in. You see, we are a Bible-teaching, Jesus-exalting people. And week after week, this is my aim. It's our aim. As we preach here week in and week out, it's just this, to have one finger on the word of God while the other hand points you to Christ. To not have you walking away here week after week saying, wow, Freedom Village is just such a great place, or Pastor James is so great, right? But have you walking out here saying, what a great savior we worship. That's the goal. And it's always been the goal of Jesus' church, which is why our text today is so essential. Because there's a major problem at the end of John 5. See, these religious leaders who study the scriptures were actually missing the purpose of the scriptures themselves. And this is important for us to note because what it tells us, what it speaks to us, is that it's actually possible to be a religious person and miss Jesus. It's possible to actually do your QT, to do your quiet time every single day and not be captivated by Jesus. It's even possible for you to wake up before everybody else, set the alarm, get in the routine, go to him in your prayer closet and lose or not actually have affections for the person of Jesus Christ. So we're going to jump into our text today and address these types of things. But before we do that, get into verse 31, let me just remind us of where we are, because context always matters. As we open up chapter 5, this whole thing we saw a few weeks ago, it started with Jesus healing this man who can't walk. He's been lame. He's paralyzed. Can't walk for 30-some-odd years. The Pharisees, the religious people, are extremely upset with Jesus at this healing, specifically because Jesus chooses to heal this man on the Sabbath, their day of rest. And so, in response, Jesus makes this statement to them that equated him with God. And the Jewish leaders understood that very clearly. So there wasn't like a code or hidden. Jesus says, The Father and I are one. The religious Jewish leaders understand him to be saying that. They heard Jesus claiming to be God. And so Jesus affirms what they heard. And he does that by talking to them about a few things. We saw this last week, about his unique relationship with the Father. He talks to them about uh, his ability, his, his power to raise the dead. And he talks to them about the authority that he has to judge the whole world. And in light of those staggering claims, he tells them, and therefore us, to believe in him. Because of who I am, believe in me. Choose to follow me. Find your joy, find your life in me and in me alone. Well, if last week was all about who Jesus is and what he can and will do, today is about why we should trust what Jesus claimed or what he said about himself that very day. You might think of it this way. If last week's text was Jesus' resume, who he is, this week's text is Jesus' references, 
okay? You've ever filled out a job application before, right? You got your resume, but then you got to provide some references to make sure that they can affirm your resume is true. Jesus here is presenting to us references or witnesses, John will call them witnesses, to confirm his magnificent claims about himself, to show us that he really is the unique son of God, that he truly is the long-awaited son of man, that he can really raise the dead, and that he really will judge the entire world. Jesus boldly claims, this is who I am and what I can do. And then he says, let me give you some witnesses to confirm what I'm saying is true. So Jesus says this, starting in verse 31. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now let's understand, Jesus is not saying that his own statement about himself is false. Okay, let's be really clear about that. Rather, what he's saying is, uh, in the Jewish culture, he's acknowledging their culture, that in the Jewish culture, we know there must be at least one witness to confirm a testimony. Okay, that's mandatory in court. It was Old Testament law for at least one more witness or an additional witness to affirm somebody's claims. And so Jesus, uh, I love that he does this, but Jesus is basically playing by their rules. He's like, not that I necessarily agree with your rules, but I know your rules, so let me play your game, okay? And then, before he lists off the witnesses to them, he sets this incredible foundation that's not for them, but for himself. He says this in verse 32. There is another one who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So Jesus starts there. He's sort of setting the foundation. Whether or not they hear this or not isn't actually that important. This is for him. He says, I've told you who I am, and there is another, that's the father, by the way, who gives me assurance, who gives me confirmation of who I am. In other words, I don't need your approval. Before I get your approval or try to get your approval, know this, I don't need your approval. I know who I am, and the Father, my Father, bears witness to who I am. That's all that matters. But for your sake, let me provide you with the references that you need. And Jesus starts with John the Baptist. This is verse 33. It says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. So again, Jesus is saying, not that I need to provide you with these references, but for your sake, actually, so that you may be saved, right, for your life, right, here they are. And he begins with John the Baptist, back to John the Baptist. John the Apostle has written a lot about John the Baptist, we're back to this guy. Jesus says this about him. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So Jesus essentially says this. You know that John came into the darkness to show you the way. That's why he came, to be a light, to shine the light of the gospel. For those of you who are taking notes or like to take notes, this is likely a reference to Psalm 132, verse 17. It's not on the screen, but you could write it down. Psalm 132, verse 17, which is all about the Messiah and says this, God will set up a lamp for his anointed one. Okay, that prophecy likely being John the Baptist. 
So John was a lamp that was established, that all may see Jesus, and so that all may believe in him and his name. And he says, there was a short time, actually. There was a season where you actually called out to John. You asked him to come and to teach you. Um, there was a season where you indulged John. You consumed what he said. You listened to him. You, you followed him. But, the illusion of the text is, you, you didn't last. <laughs> that season didn't last. It was just for a season. It's like... It's like the person who shows up to church for a couple months, but then we never see them again. Similar to that. You listened to the truth for a little while. You stood in the light for a season. You listened to the gospel. You entertained the truths about Jesus, all the works of Christ. You thought about serving. You were served, but ultimately you rejected him. You rejected Christ. But that's my first reference point. You know him, John the Baptist. Then he moves to the second reference, which is his own works. This is Jesus' second witness. This is verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. He says, there's something even more impressive. There's an even greater reason for you to believe in me than John's witness. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus simply says to them, look at my works. You've seen them. You've heard about them. And what do these works do? He says plainly here, they point you to me. That's the purpose. We went through this before, that the miracles of Jesus were signs. They are meant to be signs, which is why they're called signs. John John calls them signs time and time again. And what is the purpose of a sign? To point you somewhere, right? That's the purpose of a sign. To direct you to somewhere. Hopefully a place that you want to go. Or don't go, right? The sign is not the point. It's like if you are here, maybe you're visiting Korea. Okay, or some of you are going to travel, right, during the... During the summer, you'll come back to Korea. It's like flying in Korea, and you know when you arrive at the airport, particularly the international airport, I think it's Terminal 2 now, right? You fly, you get off the plane, and you know like there's people who choose to walk and people who choose to go on like escalator thing, right? That's kind of like flat. And some of you stand on that thing, actually. And, I, and I'm behind you, you know? <laughs> Waiting for you to get to the right, okay? But you get off that, and if you go, I think a few, there's this big sign, it's illuminated. It's like a billboard, and it says, right, welcome to Korea. Right? And the next one, land of the morning calm. Right? It's this, and you can hear Arirang playing in the background, right? You're here, right? Now, you see that, and you can tell the locals from the tourists. You see that sign. Because you look at that sign, and some are taking a picture by it. They get off and they take a picture by it. But, it. but if you came here to visit, you don't stop at that sign and stay there. Like, that's the duration of your trip, right? You're not like, all right, we saw the sign, welcome to the Korea, let's get back on the other escalator and go back home, right? No, you come into Korea, hopefully you enjoy your time and your stay. That's what signs do, right? They point you to where you are, where you're going. And this is the thing with Jesus' miracles, People, it's interesting, 
People did this then, they do them today. The same. People stumble all over miracles in a lot of different ways. Denominations live for the miracles. Some of us are opposed to miracles, and we debate about that. We stumble all the signs and miracles of the gospel. All this discussion about the signs, all this discussion about miracles, and yes, they are awesome when they occur, but we're not meant to stop at the sign. We're to go through the sign and focus on the person. So that's witness number two, Jesus says. There's John the Baptist. You know him. He testified about me. He told you who I am. My signs, my miracles point you to who I am as well. And then the third witness that Jesus provides to the people is the Father. Verse 37 starts this way. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard his form you have never seen. <laughs> Don't forget who he's talking to here, by the way. This is the Jewish elite, religious leaders. He says, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Jesus says, look, you should recognize the Father's activity in my life, but your hardness of heart has kept you from seeing him and from receiving the truth. Jesus even says here, you haven't heard his voice. He's actually referring to the scriptures there. See, we know that God speaks through his word. And Jesus says, you've actually, you, I know every one of you has read the words. You teach them to other people even, but you have heard nothing. You haven't heard what they're actually saying. And why is that? What's the real issue here? Well, Jesus tells them, you don't have his word abiding or living in you, he says. This is the real problem with the Jewish leaders of the day. He'll go on to say in verses 40 and 42, which we'll see in just a minute, you refuse to come to me. You don't want to follow me because you don't have the love of God within you. It's a heart issue. So Jesus is very clear. There is evidence that I am who I say I am. But your problem isn't evidence. Your problem isn't even uh, an intellectual problem. It's your heart. The Father has witnessed about me, but your heart has blinded you from the truth. And then finally, we have a fourth witness here in the text that Jesus provides, and that is the scriptures themselves. Why should you believe in Jesus? Because the scriptures confirm who Jesus is. John the Baptist, Jesus' works, God the Father, all of them point to Jesus being who he said he is. And then he says, the Bible affirms that as well. And actually, we're going to spend uh, the most amount of time here because Jesus spends the most amount of time here. So in verses 39 and 47... Jesus says that the Old Testament scriptures bear witness about me. That's the language he uses. He says, Moses, who you say you believe, who wrote about me, right? you've missed it. He testified about me, but you didn't listen. And this is not the first time that we've heard this idea about the Old Testament testifying about Christ, by the way. Maybe you remember back in John chapter 1, a couple months ago. 
when Philip goes to find Nathanael after his encounter with Jesus. And what does Philip say? What does Philip say to Nathanael? He says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's an incredible claim, by the way. That we have, he says, we have found the one that the Old Testament speaks about. We have found the hero of the scriptures. He is here with us. The waiting is over. The Messiah has come. Well, now in John chapter 5, Jesus is actually affirming that same truth. We're getting back to the same theme, the same point. This is John the Apostle's pattern. Let's think about this passage for a moment. What we have here in John 5 is very important in terms of helping us to understand how the Bible is put together and what the purpose is for studying the scriptures in the first place. And let me say this as as well. When we say that Jesus is the hero of the Bible, it isn't that Jesus is literally in every single verse of the Bible. Okay, don't play that game, right? It doesn't mean that all the Bible ever talks about is Jesus, right? Nor that he is the only important thing that's in the Bible, right? But it does mean that the Old Testament is telling us this one beautiful story that points us to Jesus and his redeeming work, which is the most important thing that we should see in the scriptures. It means that we are to study all of the stories in the Bible in light of this one big grand narrative. Philip sees that, understands that in John chapter one. It's why Jesus says himself, I've arrived, I've come. It's why the leaders of the church in the book of Acts go around preaching the Old Testament and saying, hey, look, this is all affirming Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. It's why the New Testament letters, the epistles, all reflect Jesus' work and why the book of Revelation at the very end tells us about Jesus' work to come. You see, it's all about Jesus. From the very beginning to the end, it all points to Jesus, which is why you and I need to always read God's word with a Christocentric lens. I'll say it that way. A Christ-centered lens. Put on those glasses every time you enter the scriptures. It's why we teach the Bible here. It's one of our values that we are gospel-centered or Christ-centered, Jesus-centered in our teaching. Because the Bible is not just a collection of ancient tales. It's not merely a book of inspired virtues. It's not just an owner's manual. It's certainly not a book of secret codes. It's a book about him. It's all about Jesus. So understand the scene here. Get yourself into the story. Jesus is standing there in front of the religious elite, the religious leaders of the day, saying to them, not only is the author of the scriptures, but the hero of the scriptures is right in front of you. (laughs) And they missed Jesus. It's tragic. And hear this now. This is so critical. Do you realize today that if they miss Jesus, if they missed him, these Bible scholars, 
who devoted their lives to the text, their whole lives. These guys who are actually literally staring at Jesus in the flesh. If it's possible for them, it is possible, quite possible, for you and I to go through all sorts of religious motions. Study the scriptures, be in a group, serve, go on a missions trip, and you can miss Jesus as well. And so I want to address that. How did these religious leaders miss Jesus? And in turn, how can you and I, or how do you and I, fall into the trap of missing him as well? Okay? So notice a couple things. First of all, I'll show you four very quickly. How we can miss Jesus. Four things. First of all, they have a problem of approach. Reasons why they miss Jesus, reasons how we can miss Jesus. It's a problem of approach. He says there, Next text, you search the scriptures. In other words, another translation, I like it better actually. You pour over the scriptures, which is a good thing, by the way. It's important for you and I to pour ourselves into and onto the word of God. It's important to be in the word, to saturate yourself in the word. But notice why they are doing this. He says, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Now, the Bible does give us truth. Of course it does. It, it, it tells us the gospel. But they believed, they thought, that by studying the word of God in itself, that would save them. It's works-based. That by pouring over the Bible, that they would find eternal life. And I want us to understand how serious the Jewish people took the scriptures. They believed this book, the law, was literally life. They taught it that way. That the book was life. And it is actually, even amongst other cultures, it is legendary how the Jewish people would toil over the words of God. You know, there's this incredible record, actually, because they would be copying God's word a lot. It's actually something that um, a lot of Koreans do, actually, where they actually have the Bible, and they literally just write the Bible out. Like, they write it word for word. It's very common here. It's a very more, actually, Middle Eastern. In the West, we have no idea what, why or, or, or what they're even talking about. You've never written anything in your life, okay? You just talk and type or whatever now, okay? But we don't, we don't do this, right? It's a way for them to memorize and meditate. This comes, actually, from Jewish culture, because you know what they would do? Imagine this. As they were copying down the word of God, here's how they would do it, especially the most elite, the highest leaders, the rabbis. They would write one letter, not a word, one letter, put down the quill, pause, contemplate what they wrote. And then when they were ready, pick up the pen and write the next letter. Pause. Because it's that serious. This is God's word. It's God's word. They're not to be taken lightly. That's how they saw the scriptures. They memorized, we know this, massive portions of the Bible. Many memorized the entire thing. By the way, they still practice this. I've told you a few times, I had the, the honor and privilege to go to Israel uh, with a team when I was in seminary and took a class there, actually. And our tour guide, his name was Avi, unbelievable. He had the entire Bible, entire thing, 
Genesis to Revelation, memorized in two languages. Hebrew, New Testament Greek, and English. The whole thing. Three, really. Unreal. So we would go to a site, and he'd be like, oh, oh, it's this. And he'd just start speaking scripture. No Bible. We'd be looking. I'm just, the whole time, I was just a mess. I went through, like, literally, like, I had a, two backpacks, one with my stuff, one with tissues. It was just a mess, like, everywhere. It was just incredible. They're so devoted to the scriptures. And yet, and yet, yes, it's impressive. It's, it's hard to wrap our minds around that type of devotion and dedication, and yet they read the word of God with this cold, empty superstition. They were wooden in their faith, is a way to say it. And they never truly pressed into the central message of the scriptures. As one commentator put it, they missed the forest for the trees. And how dangerous that is, that you can pour yourselves into and onto the scriptures and still miss Jesus. Some of the best, actually, New Testament scholars of today are not believers. Did you know that? You can go to, some of your kids will go to these colleges. One of them, one of them Bart Ehrman, he's at UNC Chapel Hill, for example. We all want our kids to go there. They will, he will teach you the New Testament, and he'll convince you to be an atheist. Right? You can pour yourselves over the scriptures. You can study the word of God and still miss Jesus. And what does that mean for us here at FEC? Well, what it means is a few things. But first of all, it means that we take the Bible very seriously here. We, we teach the Bible. We love the Bible. In every aspect of all of our ministries, we, we put God's word in the center. Jesus is in the center. But if our studying of the scriptures doesn't make us love Jesus more, something is wrong. Right? We, we aren't studying the Bible to become Bible experts but to become real disciples of Jesus Christ. We're not here training for Bible trivia, but to be captivated by Christ, to adore the hero of the scriptures. They missed Jesus because they had an approach problem. It's how they were entering into the text. Second, we see that they missed Jesus because of a problem of desire. A problem of desire. Jesus adds... Not only are you approaching the Bible wrong, he says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What Jesus is actually saying here is, you don't want to come to me. That's another way to translate the text, actually. Your problem is, you don't actually want to go to Jesus. They have deliberately set themselves against Jesus, actually. And you know, this question... This question, what do you want, or personalize it, what do I want is extremely fundamental for the Christian life. James K. Smith says of this question, what do you want? He says, what do you want is the first, last, and most fundamental question of Christian discipleship. It starts and ends there. What do you want? Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flows. So we must ask ourselves, perhaps even daily, what do I want? Do I even want to go to Jesus? Don't assume your answer. <laughs> Search your heart. 
Do you really want Jesus? Listen, if you are in Christ today, if you belong to Jesus, it is because, no other reason then, God, by his spirit, has opened your eyes and he has changed your desires. He has changed your affections. But even with that, we still deal with the residue of the old person, which means that we have to go to war every single day with our wants, every single day with our affections, every single day with our desires. What do you want? Jesus says, you don't want to come to me. You're convinced that you do. You think that you do, but you don't really want to. Your desires are corrupt. They're corroded, is what he's saying. And then he expands on that by addressing their love in verses 41 and 42. He says, I do not receive, receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. <laughs> this is a really strong statement from Jesus. It's very harsh. And notice here that he actually, he actually moves from defending himself. He's on the defense presenting witnesses. But now he switches it just in a, in a second. And he goes on the offensive. He says, you guys are looking for your own glory. That's the problem. And you have a religious life, a really good religious life, but it's not a life that loves God. You're just going through the motions. And then Jesus tackles what is perhaps, some argue, many argue, is actually the center of unbelief in every person's heart and soul. The center of unbelief, of not going to Jesus. So we should take special note of this. He says, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So what is he dealing with here? He's dealing with the problem of their motivation. The problem of their motivation. Their motivation is off. Again, their motivation is corrupt. And it's causing them to miss Jesus. And it causes many in our world to miss Jesus. He's essentially saying, what he's saying is this, you don't actually want a savior like me. You have your own expectation for Savior. You don't want a humble king. But, he says, if there was a Messiah, if there was a Savior that looked, at you, looked like you, you'd receive him. Why? Because you're in love with yourself. Ouch. And by the way, that's the story for most in our world who don't know Jesus. They all say they want a Savior. Oh, yeah, they all want the kingdom. But they want their own kingdom. They want a savior that meets their criteria, their rules, their roles, allows them to do what they want, allows them to sit in the seat of their own lives. You can see why, by the way, as you're reading through this text, you can see why the Jews are so upset with him, yeah? <laughs> Imagine, right? These are people who everyone respects, everyone kind of nods to, bows to, don't even speak to them. They have that much authority. You don't speak unless you're spoken to. They're, they're just revered in this society. And Jesus has the audacity to speak to them like this. Jesus says to them, you are all about your own glory. You want all eyes on you. Right? All eyes on you. All eyes on me. Famous prophet, Tupac, right? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. You can't go, you can't go listen to it either, so I... 
don't, okay? That's pre-Christ, right? Okay. With that motivation, though, with that motivation, he says, when you want all eyes on you, when you're all about your own glory, he says, how can you believe? And by the way, that's not a question, that's a statement. What's at the heart of unbelief or the heart of our unbelief is self-glory. And you can never, you can never believe. You can never have true lasting faith when your heart is in that place. And Jesus is not finished with them yet. Having addressed their problem of approach, they don't see Jesus as the hero of the scriptures. Having addressed the problem of their heart, they don't love God and they seek their own glory. He now addresses another aspect of their pride that they not only prided themselves in their study of Scripture, this one's interesting, but they also wrongly prided in Moses. See, in Jewish culture, especially amongst the religious leaders, Moses, we could say it this way, Moses was their sacred saint. Okay? He was seen, actually, he's called their defender and their advocate. Isn't that ironic? But that's how they deem him. That's how they esteem him. Our defender, our advocate, Moses. Notice how Jesus says this in verse 45. It's not on the screen. You have to have God's word in front of you. But in verse 45, he says, that you guys have set your hope on Moses. See that there? You've set your hope on Moses. And to that, Jesus says, here's the problem. Here's the problem with you setting your hope on Moses. Moses set his hope on me. <laughs> Meaning this, you have not only missed the point of Scripture in general, but you also, you, you, you have missed the point of Moses in particular. If you really had paid attention to Moses, if you're really the, the scholars that you say that you are, with your hearts pure, your motives clean, if you really listen to Moses, you would believe me right now. After all, Moses was always pointing to Jesus. Right? We do not have the time to go through all this. It could be a gigantic sermon series, actually. But let's be mindful. It was Moses who wrote in Genesis 3 about the son who would come to crush the serpent's head. It was Moses who wrote of the seed of Abraham, whom through all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It was Moses who wrote of the Passover lamb to come. It was Moses who wrote about the tabernacle. It was Moses who wrote about the bread coming from heaven. It was Moses who gave the law, which was a gift of God's grace to show us our sin and point us to our need for a savior. Here's the point today. I know there's a lot, right? A lot to cover. Here's the point. We can really believe Jesus when he says that he is the unique son of God, that he is the savior, that he is the Lord of all. How? How do we know? Because John the Baptist confirmed it, because God the Father had confirmed it, Jesus works his miracles confirm it, and the scriptures, all of scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, confirms it. They all point to Jesus. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones says it in her great little children's book, the Jesus Storybook Bible. We actually give this to all of the the kids who are dedicated here, we give this Bible or this book uh, to the parents. She says this in that book. Now, some people think that the Bible is a book of rules. 
telling us what you should do and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other, pink, other people think that the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it. Most of the people in the Bible, though, are not heroes at all. They make some really big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid. They run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's a story, an adventure story, of a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are a lot of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling this one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story, every story in the whole Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. See, church family, it's all about Jesus. It's always been all about him. May our lives be all about him. May we point people to him from the scriptures. This Jesus who has come to rescue religious people who study the scriptures all day long. This Jesus who has come to rescue irreligious people who don't know even one verse of our scriptures. Through him, all can find life that is truly life. Every word that this Jesus has said proves true. You can trust in the one who always keeps his promises. You should love the one who always keeps his promises for all of the promise of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. So let us love the word of God. Let us love the word of Jesus because we love the Jesus of the word. And let us never miss Jesus, but rather let us center our lives totally and completely in him. Amen? Let me pray for us. I'll ask the praise team to join me back on the stage. We're going to prepare our hearts now for communion.